This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on Crohn's disease. My name is Lalitha Bhagavathisaran and I'm an Outreach and Engagement Manager at BMJ. Crohn's disease is an important and common medical disorder which has a significant effect on patients' quality of life. The incidence and prevalence of Crohn's disease is increasing worldwide, occurring in both men and women at approximately equal rates. With this increase, it's important that healthcare professionals are able to correctly recognize, diagnose, and treat patients with Crohn's disease. To help us, we have on the line Dr. Georgia Woodfield, who is a specialist registrar in gastroenterology and general medicine in Northwest London and a research fellow at Imperial College London. Georgia is also one of the authors of our BMJ best practice topic on Crohn's disease. So welcome to the podcast, Georgia. Thank you very much. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is Crohn's disease? Crohn's disease is a complex chronic inflammatory gastrointestinal condition with a variable age of onset, disease location and behaviour. It is a disorder of unknown etiology with likely both genetic and environmental factors and it's more common in northern climates and developed countries. It's characterised by transmural inflammation of the GI tract. It can involve all or any part of the entire gastrointestinal tract, so that can be all the way from the mouth to the anus, and the inflammation is transmural. This can lead to fibrosis and stricturing, which may lead to intestinal obstruction. The mucosal inflammation can also result in sinus tracts that burrow through the mucosa and penetrate the serosa, therefore can give rise to perforations and fistulae. The presentation of this disease is variable and can include obstructive symptoms, but can also include abdominal pain, altered bowel habit, often diarrhea, fever, fatigue and weight loss. There are also numerous extra intestinal manifestations that may occur, um, such as anterior uveitis, iritis and episcleritis in the eye, uh, polyarthritis, and then skin manifestations and liver manifestations as well. Can you tell us about any recent advances in diagnosis? Yeah, I think it's worth saying that since Crohn's was first labelled back in the 1930s, um, the diagnosis still is very much dependent on a good history and examination. Um, however, now we have ileocolonoscopy and histology. We have small bowel imaging and we have blood tests, particularly inflammatory markers and also fecal calprotectin. I think the most recent advances, though, in diagnosis include the fact that we can do much more detailed endoscopies now. We use um, high-definition endoscopes and now use chromoendoscopy, which is using indigo-carmine dye spray to highlight the mucosal change. We used to use high-definition white light endoscopy that was previously recommended, but the chromoendoscopy picks up inflammatory and also dysplastic change much more easily. And we also now have the option of balloon-assisted endoscopy. This is where an endoscope can be passed through the entire small bowel if needed. This has the benefit of enabling biopsies for histology in areas which we weren't able to access before. Um, we can also use capsule endoscopy, and this can identify Crohn's disease lesions in a small bowel and very small areas of ulceration, which are often even difficult to see on a scan. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning how much the small bowel imaging has improved in recent years. 
we used to depend a lot on um, fluoroscopic techniques, and we still do use those, so barium and gastrographin follow-throughs. But now these have largely been replaced with small bowel MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging, um, particularly for diagnosis. This is because MR imaging techniques clearly highlight not only the endoluminal disease, but also the mural and extramural enteric details, but also provides vascular and functional information. This enhances the diagnostic value of the scan, uh, particularly in small bowel disease. And of course, MRIs have the great benefit of not having any radiation. Therefore, multiple scans can be done over the lifetime of the patient to review their disease progress, which would not be the case in a CT, which of course has high doses of radiation. Mm. What are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? Well, first of all, distinguishing Crohn's disease from other forms of um, other inflammatory bowel diseases can be a bit difficult. Uh, Crohn's disease typically has discontinuous inflammation, skip lesions. It involves the ileum and the inflammation is granulomatous. Um, The inflammation also tends to be worse in the proximal colon and can, can occur anywhere in the gastrointestinal tract. This is different to ulcerative colitis because the stack involves the colon only and it has continuous non-granulomatous inflammation. It tends to be worse distally and the inflammation is more superficial with no penetrating lesions. However, distinguishing Crohn's and ulcerative colitis is a pitfall because in ulcerative colitis, which is partially treated, this can look patchy on endoscopy and can mimic skip lesions. Or you can get backwash ileitis in ulcerative colitis and that can mimic ileal Crohn's disease. You can also get um, cryptolytic granulomas in ulcerative colitis, which may confuse the picture. And also, it's worth saying that granulomas actually only occur in about 50% of Crohn's disease patients. So their absence might not help the diagnosis either. Um, other inflammatory bowel disease, such as, sorry, other um, differential diagnoses that can mimic inflammatory bowel disease include things like diverticulitis or radiation proctitis or infective colitis. Um, TB can also mimic Crohn's because it may affect just the terminal ileum. Um, it can also cause um, small bowel abscess ulceration, which can look like Crohn's on a scan or on endoscopy. For this reason, diagnosis is best made by a multidisciplinary team, and that would include the clinicians looking after the patient, also radiologists and pathologists. It's interesting because studies have shown that even with this input, around 3% of ulcerative colitis patients are actually reclassified as Crohn's colitis, and 06 to 3% of patients with Crohn's are classified as ulcerative colitis. So there is still some difficulty sometimes. And some patients cannot be categorized at all, and they are labeled IBD unclassified. That's really helpful. Thank you. Has there been any recent advances in management? Yes, certainly. The management of inflammatory bowel disease has for a long time included steroids for acute flares and induction of remission, and then immunomodulator therapy, and that might be azathioprine or methotrexate for maintenance of remission. Surgery also remains a very important therapy, particularly for isolated terminal ileal disease, or isolated colonic involvement, or in um, abscesses, stricturing or fistulating disease. However, the treatment area with by far the most marked advances in recent years is with the immunosuppression side of things. And this has been absolutely revolutionized by the introduction of biologic therapy with monoclonal antibodies. 
this has delivered great benefits to patients, improved quality of life, and prevented many patients from being on long courses of steroids. Biologics can be used early in the initial treatment of Crohn's disease, and that's moderate to severe Crohn's disease, or can be used for maintenance of remission, either alone or in combination with other immunosuppressants. Just to talk a little bit more about the biologics, the, the kind of most long-standing and best-researched ones are infliximab and adalimumab, and they are both anti-tumor necrosis factor agents, which are widely shown to be highly effective for Crohn's, also osteoclitis. Biosimilar infliximab is now also widely used. However, more recently, we have the introduction of newer biologic agents, and this includes medalizumab in 2015. This is a selective leukocyte adhesion molecule inhibitor, and it can be used in Crohn's and osteoclitis. Then most recently, in 2017, ustekinumab, and that now has nice approval. Ustekinumab is a monoclonal antibody targeting the P40 subunit of interleukin-12 and interleukin-23. In fact, there's a really useful summary about the use of these newer biologics. It was published this month in Frontline Gastroenterology, so October 2019, um, which talks a lot about how to use these new agents. Um, another novel treatment strategy, which I think is very important, is the fact that we can now test serum drug concentrations and drug antibody levels. With a serum drug concentration, we can now monitor an exposure-response relationship in patients on biologics, and we can also carry out therapeutic drug monitoring. This allows a very much more individualized, patient-based regime of optimal dosing and frequency of medication. With anti-drug antibody levels, it also means we can differentiate a patient who has a lack of response due to insufficient dosing from a lack of response due to inefficacy of the drug due to antibody development. We therefore know now whether we need to dose escalate where there's insufficient dosing or switch agent where there are antibody, where there is antibody development. And in terms of the pitfalls of management, what are, what are the common ones? Well, with the increase in range of options for treatment of Crohn's disease, of course, this has greatly improved patient outcomes. However, it's also greatly increased the complexity of the decision-making for IBD physicians. Um, this is also not helped by the fact that there's not yet clear guidance on the optimal use of the newer therapies. For example, for vedalizumab and ustekinumab, we, we don't know whether they could be used first line instead of the anti-TNF drugs, or if or how drug monitoring could influence their use. Um, another pitfall, more generally with Crohn's disease, is... Um, managing Crohn's disease is knowing when to escalate or de-escalate therapy. That's quite a specialized area. There are a number of different scoring systems for Crohn's. There's the endoscopic-based scores, such as the endoscopic, um, the Crohn's disease endoscopic index of severity, or the simplified endoscopic activity score. And these focus on endoscopic remission. However, it has been known for a long time that clinical presentation does not always match mucosal change. Other scores are therefore used in the clinic, such as the Harvey Bradshaw score or the CDAI, which stands for Crohn's Disease Activity Index. And these are focused on more clinical markers of remission, where a Harvey Bradshaw less than or equal to four or a CDAI of less than 150 are used to define remission. However, in practice, multiple factors are taken into account when considering escalation or de-escalation of therapy, including quite simple markers such as the uh, C-reactive protein and fecal calprotectin. And actually, these simple markers have been shown to improve quality of life outcomes, at least in the short term. 
um, by the CALM trial in The Lancet in 2018. But again, an MDT decision is best in these complicated cases, knowing when to start and stop uh, medication. I think another pitfall is um, the more complex fistulating disease in Crohn's, uh, particularly perianal involvement of Crohn's disease, so perianal abscesses and fistulae. Um, and the reason I say it's a pitfall is because, on the one hand, immunomodulators such as azathioprine and biologics such as infliximab have been shown to be very effective in healing fistulae. But on the other hand, these suppress the immune system and therefore put the patient at risk of overwhelming sepsis if an infection source is still present. Therefore, treatment of abscesses and infection with antibiotics and or surgery must precede the immunosuppression and seton sutures can be used to aid drainage of fistulous tracts uh, before and during the first few weeks of biologic therapy. However, timing of the commencement of immunosuppression and the timing of removal of the seton sutures can be a very difficult decision. Because of course, we want the best, we want the patients to heal, but we don't want to put them at risk by introducing infection. Okay, thank you. What have we missed? Perhaps you can tell us some of the common questions you get asked about this disease. Sure. I think I often get asked about combination therapy. Combination therapy refers to where you're using a, a biologic for Crohn's disease treatment, but also at the same time uh, continuing another immunosuppressant. This is often a pre-existing immunosuppressant such as azathioprine or methotrexate. And the rationale for combination therapy is that you're using two and you know two Crohn's disease drugs, um, so this um, can treat the Crohn's from two different angles. But the other point is that the immunosuppressant reduces the development of anti-drug antibodies and therefore improves the patient's response to the biologic. And for infliximab, this has been shown to improve clinical remission rates and mucosal healing. That was shown in the SONIC study. And in the PANTS study, uh, combination therapy was shown to decrease the risk of immunogenicity. Uh, for this reason, infliximab um, is recommended in the, in the British Society of Gastroenterology Guidelines to be used in combination, particularly with azathioprine. Um, the evidence is less compelling for adalimumab as clinical benefits have been less clearly demonstrated. So combination therapy is recommended. However, as always, we need to take the individual patient into account given the risks of immunosuppression on two immunosuppressant drugs and the side effects of both and polypharmacy. I just wanted to mention, I also get um, asked quite a lot about using mesalazine and sulfasalazine in Crohn's disease. So the five ASAs, five aminosalicylic acid-based drugs. And I think this is because a study in 1990 to 2010 showed that over half of Crohn's disease patients are prescribed five ASAs. Um, and this is interesting because they're actually not recommended for induction or for maintenance of remission of Crohn's disease. And this was shown in a, a Cochrane review that five ASAs had no efficacy for maintenance of Crohn's. And there's been some meta-analyses as well showing that they did not, they weren't effective in um, inducing uh, remission or maintenance. Um, so actually they're not recommended specifically in Crohn's disease. Thank you very much, Georgia. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you have learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.